The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. So I, my prediction here is that um, they found the treasure on Oak Island. And they found it early in their season of filming. So they have to fill all these episodes with nothing so that they can save the discovery of the treasure for the final episode. Because otherwise I can't explain why there's a TV show anymore. Because the last few weeks have just been completely, um, I'm not going to say boring, because there's some interesting yeah, things. Boring. But they were boring. They were yeah, pretty boring. Yeah, pretty much yeah. boring. So, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I tuned in. The wife tur- turned on Curse of Oak Island tonight and... I don't know. I found myself browsing Facebook. Yeah, the last, I think, three, maybe four episodes have been rather uh, lackluster. I mean, they let's let's face it, uh, for anybody who's following the television show or knows of, you know, what's going on there, um, the excavation of Smith's Cove is showing some pretty cool stuff, but, but I don't see them getting super excited about it, which makes me believe they know it's all searcher stuff. There's nothing there that's, you know... Uh, old enough to be uh, from the depositors, uh, just because I don't see any real excitement. They, you know, they kind of act like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." But yeah, you're like me. I always watch the facial expression, right? Right. And uh, I don't know. I just I wasn't. I'm not seeing anything. I'm get, I'm getting bored. Well, like I said, it's, it's kind of like how it was with The Walking Dead. I literally have not watched it in a season and a half. I'm with you. I'm exactly almost two seasons. I think I'm, I think I'm right in the same place with you on that. Um, so I just have to assume here that they found the treasure and then they had to go and backfill all these episodes and so that they could save the reveal of the treasure to the last episode. I think if they found the treasure, <laughs> we, there would be no hiding it. Well, that's a good point. Um, Unless it's like one nugget of gold. It, you know, uh, the, one of the things. Old Spanish coin. What was the name that's of the it. author? Um, Randall Sullivan. The author that wrote the oh, book, yeah. we had him on. We had him on a few weeks ago. He's going to be on next week's episode again. So I'm anxious, anxious to see what he has to say there. I don't know. Should be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, well. I, anyway. I know. I know other people a little frustrated too. I've I've kind of been reading social media about it, but yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely uh, the masses are, are feeling that same way about it. But hey, everybody, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio with me, Jason Hawes, and JV Johnson. Uh, tonight we've got some great show. Well, we got a great show. Tonight we're going to be talking with John Potash, uh, author and documentarian. We're going to be discussing his newly released film, Drugs is a Weapon Against Us, The CIA War on Musicians and Activists. It's based on the book Drugs as Weapons Against Us, CIA's Murderous Targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac and other leftists. So it should be really interesting. I mean, we've had John on in the past and uh, it's it's sort of a mind-blowing show. Yeah, I remember our discussion when he was on the first time and it was it was mind-blowing and the idea that our intelligence community may be doing something that he asserts they're doing as in using uh, drugs to control parts of society through these celebrities, um, that in itself is not only scary. I mean, this is the type of stuff that, you know, sci-fi novels like, uh, uh, you know, 1984 and Big Brother and all these things uh, that we fear from our governments. It's, this is right out of that textbook. Well, especially when if you go to John's website and you, you can watch some of the, uh, well, just some of the re- uh, releases and some of the uh, the talks that have been out there about the government admitting and all these documents that have come out about the government bringing drugs in and doing certain things in these areas and people who talk up about it mysteriously end up uh, usually dead so it's it's kind of scary but you can check out his website at john potash that's j-o-h-n potash p-o-t-a-s-h dot com and just watch watch the trailer because i think the trailer right there will Kind of make you uneasy. Yeah, make it makes you really uncomfortable. Um, and then in the second part of the program, we've got a couple of paranormal investigators. We've had them on the program before, uh, Rhonda and Dwight Hull. They've written a couple of books about the haunted Southwest. They have a new one uh, that has just come out as a, as a follow up to their first book, and we're going to talk about haunted stories of the Southwest with Rhonda and Dwight Hull. And then tomorrow, very exciting night. We've got a good friend of ours. He's been on the show a few different times, and it's Doctor Knowledge. And this this guy is awesome, but uh, and we're going to be talking about fascinating facts from the all time book of fascinating facts. Yeah, so. again, uh, I think this will be the third time he's been on the program over the course of three years, and we always enjoy having him on because we always learn something, and we're always uh, you know we leave the program laughing and smiling and thinking, wow, that was really cool. Yeah, and some of it's just crazy. Some of the things that he brings up and why we do certain things or why 
certain foods are known for certain areas and how things it's just it's mind-blowing it really is and then thursday of course uh we've got readings with rebecca foster yeah it's the first thursday of february so we do our readings with rebecca i know february and you know what's crazy all right so last february i mean we had mind-blowing cold temperatures we're in minus you know minus 10 minus 12 it was 65 degrees here today. <laughs> Yesterday was 63. Tomorrow will be 32. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. But but it, it's been incredible. It truly felt like it was spring. Well, you know, all it takes is one. I was in my G-string in the backyard. Yeah, I, I don't want to know. Doing yoga. I it was awesome, JD. Ooh, I don't want to hear and about actually, stretches. Actually, I took video. I'm going to send it to you. I don't want to see stretches in a G-string <laughs> on you. No. Thank you. Um, all it takes is with that, you know, for that Arctic blast to kind of ma- rear its ugly head, and it can drop temperatures in a real hurry. Everything's going to yeah. freeze like crazy. Yeah, definitely uh, not looking forward to it. I, I know we've got already some uh, ice uh, warnings for uh, tomorrow night and everything else, so it should be uh, fun. Yeah, it should be uh, it should be fun at that. Um, I did want to bring up something that I thought was pretty cool. Um, there is a real concern among the military community uh, in the United States because there's been a report that the uh, Russian military is now um, using a new weapon that makes its targets hallucinate. It makes them vomit, and it makes them obviously incapacitated. Now, wow. there were there were weapons like that back in World War One. They were, uh, you know, chemical gas weapons, um, yeah. and they've been banned by uh, international treaties. Um, these aren't gas weapons. These are some type of beam. Um, it seems. Well, they were messing around with microwave beams and, and so forth there for a while. So yeah, this particular weapon uses a strobe light effect. That makes the uh, through the eyesight, it makes it more difficult for people to aim, and it also makes them hallucinate the the, the targets that is, and makes them, as I said, vomit. Um, they get dizzy, they get disoriented, um, and twenty percent of the people experience hallucin- hallucinations. And uh, it's called the fillin, is what the weapon is called. And the Russians have armed it on their war- warships, two of them at this point, and the weapon is expected to be installed on more ships. As those ships are built, well, that'd be crazy because in a war, I mean, you pretty much neutralize the enemy without ever firing a shot. And that's scary stuff. Yeah, it, it is. It is scary. And um, I mean, again, I, I go back to the fact I've been watching Star Trek, and I don't know if they have that weapon on there, but it sure seems like something from Star Trek. Yeah, very possibly. Hey, if you she's <laughs> if you haven't you head over to Facebook.com slash beyond reality radio. Like that Facebook page for us. Then head to beyondrealityradio.com. You can find all the stations we are on across the country. You can download the free smartphone apps, which will also allow you to listen live, catch past shows, and more. Or any night we're live, just click the listen live or the listen live and chat button right there from the website. And you can listen while browsing the rest of the web. If you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, just take two seconds of your time and please rate it for us. It helps uh, get the show out there a little more, and and we greatly appreciate that. And we know that there's a lot of people who, uh, who listen to the show. I know it's being downloaded tens of thousands of times a day, and we greatly appreciate that support. So just take two seconds and rate it. Please, <laughs> how yeah. about that one? Yeah, that, my, my that was plea. nice. That was very, like that? that was very Please. nice, very polite, very yeah, polite, and a little pathetic, but that's okay. Yeah, well, it's kind of what my kids do to me. <laughs> when you know, Dad, can I please have that? Well, um, I'm going to say, hey, can we please get John Potash on so we can start talking about this documentary, "Drugs as Weapons Against Us." All right, you heard him, Slick. Get John on. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Get John, and uh, we got a lot more to come. You listen to Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our guest tonight is a returning guest to the program, John Potash. He's written a book called Drugs as Weapons Against Us, and now he's made it into a documentary film. And uh, we're always excited to have this conversation. John, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for having me on again, Jason. Oh, thanks for coming back. So um, you've made the book into a documentary. Tell us about the process. Well, uh, it was just a matter of just getting as much of the sources that I, that I have in the book, saying what I said they said on film, and uh, getting as many of the documents that I uh, reference in my book on film. And, um, you know, I just feel like I, I got a whole lot of these whistleblowers, CIA whistleblowers such as John Stockwell and Phil Agee, FBI whistleblowers, such as Wes Swearingen, uh, former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, um, people like that, um, saying that basically our government or the CIA was using drugs to control the masses on behalf of the super-rich, and they particularly used these musicians, uh, you know, some of our favorite musicians. They manipulated them to promote drugs inadvertently, and then when they started sobering up, and getting more into activism, those musicians sadly were done away with. So, I mean, again, just as the first time we heard you talk about this, um, you know, there's a bit of a, it's, it's kind of scary, but it's also a bit dumbfounding. Um, what was the intent of, of the CIA in its effort to control people for the rich? What were they trying to accomplish? Well, I show the evidence that the CIA was founded by the very wealthiest uh, families in this country, um, the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgans, Bushes, Carnegies, etc., and that was in 1947. And and the document that founded them, National Security Act of 1947, basically made them above the law. And so they proceeded to start uh, projects such as MK Ultra, which is the kind of umbrella project for this all I talk about, that were in their own documents saying using drugs as unconventional weapons, you know. And so people think of uh, unconventional weapons as being used in warfare, but actually these weapons are being used, you know, I show all the evidence, on people in the United States. I show the the CIA documents that say that they're to be used surreptitiously on people of all social levels. And in the United States... And that comes from a U.S. Senate Church Committee kind of a summary of what they found in the CIA documents of the you know, in Project MKUltra. So I show footage from a documentary uh, covering the Senate Church Committee hearing, saying they uncovered you know 16,000 documents from MKUltra. Other researchers have found up to 30,000 documents, and I quote a number of those documents. And it was showing, for example, that one of their top drugs that they were using, LSD was used to to manipulate us and they found that they could just with drugs in general but particularly drugs like LSD and and similar hallucinogenics they could get people uh acting in ways they wanted when and making those people think that they were acting on on their own you know best interest but you know they used drugs that way and they used propaganda in general such as just mainstream media that they owned and uh, that's why, you know, radio stations like yours are so important, you know, radio programs like yours that, that present this alternative information. Well, and the original uh, design for MK Ultra was pretty much to weaken individuals for interrogation, right, and force confessions and things of that nature. But, of course, it expanded. It started being used for multiple different things. Yeah, and that's what they keep. They keep that line, you know, up that's saying it's just for interrogation, but... All the evidence shows, and when they, they basically when they were found out by John F. Kennedy in 1963 or 64, basically in 63, um, in 60, well, I mean 61 when he first came to office, he closed down MKUltra, and uh, then it was found that it was a- operating anyway behind his back, behind the CIA director's back. They had to close it down yet again um, in 63. But so at that point, they had to change the name to hide it better, and they changed the name of uh, Project MKUltra to Project MK Search. And then when they were found out again in 1973 by the you know, Senate Church Committee, they pretended to close it down again, but whistleblowers say it continued just under different names, just like uh, the FBI's operation, uh, the counterintelligence program, that uh, whistleblowers say continued under different names. And so, and that was used against people that were pro-war and pro-civil rights, but particularly 
harshly used against the uh, Black Panther Party. But um, MKUltra was found in the same way to be used against anyone who is pro-war and anyone who is pro-civil rights. And that's, that turned out to be their main targets throughout the 60s, and that's what a lot of the documents show. And so, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, coverage of it, though, has these guys, all these MKUltra agents, and there was many. There was uh, 199 sub-projects under Project MKUltra. And so uh, they found that all these agents were spreading LSD around the world. They were traveling around the world getting people to use acid and other drugs. But particularly LSD was the most popular. They tested three dozen different drugs on soldiers, thousands of soldiers, to see the effects for the use of these drugs as unconventional weapons. And so they knew the effects of all these different drugs. And then when they operationalized them, they knew how they could use them against anyone who protested their incredibly pro-war and anti-civil rights policies. Well, and the thing was, also with MKUltra, especially during its infancy, a lot of people didn't even know that they were subjects and that were being experimented on. I mean, these, these things were going on to unknowing mm-hmm. participants. Yeah, involuntarily. I mean, you, take, you take yes, a sip I out mean, of a water yeah. bottle and, you know, next thing you know, it's, it's in your system. Right. And so Paul Robus, in the first time, I mean, when they targeted him in 1961, it was three weeks before he was supposed to meet actually with Che Guevara and Fidel Castro to talk about relations and you know, what they were doing over there. And he was in Moscow at the time um, singing. And uh, so he was in, in a hotel room and uh, some American patriots uh, influenced him to come to a party and they dosed his drink and he thought he was going crazy. And his adult son, Paul Robeson Jr., said he went over there, and then they did the same thing to him when he got over there. And they really ended up messing up Paul Robeson Sr.'s mind. Well, and what, Paul Robeson Jr. was lucky that he only drank a little bit of, of, what, of the drink, yes. but Paul Robeson Sr. was influenced to go and get uh, into a hospital, and then they gave him electric ECT treatment at super high levels and really ruined his whole Well, uh, John, in the beginning of the discussion, you mentioned that in the documentary you found source footage for many of the people that you reference and quote um, as insiders and uh, somewhat, I guess, whistleblowers, if you will. That's a pretty impressive list of people. They're pretty uh, noteworthy, respectable and high profile people. Yeah, thanks. So people like U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, I have in the film, um, and he had told me in a conference in 1991 that he thinks the government uses drugs to sedate and divide the masses. And I just show even more evidence that they also use these drugs to disorient and divert the masses. Uh, with people like Timothy Leary, I show the evidence that he admitted in an interview that he knew he was working for the CIA when he popularized LSD, saying, turn on, tune in, drop out. And meaning drop out of activism, which was so, you know, getting so popular at the time between the Freedom Riders going from New York, the New York area down to help, you know, Martin Luther King's movement in the South and all that. And, um, but Timothy Leary set up shop in a Millbrook mansion, a place owned by uh, the Robin, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, Mellon Hitchcock family who owned Mellon Bank and Gulf Oil and all and popularized LSD up there with loads of Project MKUltra scientists just hanging out there trying all kinds of psychedelics and all the New Yorkers that came up for the party. And, you know, they lured up there for the party. And so they did that to popularize drugs on, in that area, and then the Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters did the same in the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, Robert Lashbrook, the assistant director of MKUltra went over to London, according to a book by A.E. Hotchner on the Rolling Stones, and Hotchner was the longtime editor for Ernest Hemingway. And so in his book, he says, Hotchner went over to London with loads of money, loads of acid, and loads of agents, and directed those agents to get LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible in the beginning of 1965. And then later in 65, uh, the dentist for George Harrison of the Beatles uh, has a, has John Lennon and Harrison over for dinner. Yeah, and Dr. Robert. Their, their coffee with acid. Dr. Robert, yep. Yeah. And so I show that's just no coincidence, uh, you know, because it, uh, undercover of the Daily Mail, which is the daily, new, uh, daily newspaper in, in England, said that uh, in 67, J- Mick Jagger actually was a holdout from using acid for several years. 
and an undercover agent, uh, FBI and MI5 agent named Dave Schneiderman actually convinced Jagger to use LSD for the first time. And after he used it, a few hours later, the police came in and, and uh, busted Jagger and Richards and others, but didn't bust Schneiderman, who had tons of drugs in his, in his uh, suitcase. So that's some of the ways they used these drugs. Um, got people introduced to these musicians. They had tons of other agents and ways to convince them, oh, it wasn't so bad, you should trip some more. But then when they started sobering up, like when Lennon started settling down and raising his child and sobering up um, and was getting more into activism, it had told Newsweek magazine that he was going to be leading a protest um, in San Francisco, they uh, did him in and, uh, you know, identified the, the doorman that night, the Dakota, that aided Chapman in the killing of Lennon. His name was um, Jose Joaquin Sangenis Perdomo, and he's, he was a former member of the Bay of Pigs invasion and was considered a, a hitman for the CIA and was on the CIA payroll. Wow. Um, so I have to understand here, the CIA was getting these drugs into the hands of people who could, who could inf- influence uh, society, influence pop culture. Um, were they also uh, handing these drugs out to citizens, just regular citizens? Were they, yes. were they bringing them into communities? Oh, yes, in a huge way. I mean, in uh, Vietnam, for example, John Stockwell, CIA agent who I, I got to talk to at a conference in 1990, um, had said that his agency was flying uh, heroin from the Vietnam area into the United States and I, I quote Judy Woodruff uh, when a frontline, a special frontline feature, where she shows the, the CIA documents, you know, testifying to this, that they were bringing uh, tons of heroin from Vietnam to the United States. And so, yeah, they were doing that, and they, were, they happened to target the, you know, black communities at that time. And, uh, when, you know, soon after a civil unrest, like riots, race riots, the activists called them race rebellions, and um, they were targeting uh, anti-war leaders, such as the head of the Students for Democratic Society at Columbia University, uh, which was the first place of building takeovers to protest the Vietnam War. I show the evidence, I show the picture of the undercover agent that infiltrated uh, Abby Hoffman's group and then had a party with uh, the uh, SDS group and dosed the SDS members um, with acid. And so they were used against, you know, top SDS leaders, along with um, infiltrating the Black Panthers with cocaine and getting them to use cocaine and, um, and you know, in other ways and with other groups. I show how they were used against the Occupy movement, too. Were they trying to create addicts here, or was it just a case of, um, you know, keep them busy, keep these folks busy and, and their minds off of, uh, you know, protests and, and other what they would consider destructive behavior? Well, both. Now, acid's not as addictive. It's just uh, disorienting and can hurt. I just showed the evidence that it really hurts your mind. Um, and uh, loads of, there's loads of evidence to that effect. And it hurts your emotional control, so it causes lots of anxiety. Now, being a counselor for the last 30 years and uh, with a specialty in addictions and trauma, I uh, have seen a lot of uh, people, you know, after using acid, how it really hurts their emotional states. But um, it diverts them from their best work. It hurts their mind from doing their best work, but also it does form, you know, addictions in people. Of course, the heroin and cocaine are much more habit-forming. And so once you get people using cocaine and heroin, there's a better chance that they'll develop an addiction to it, especially with physiological withdrawal symptoms from heroin. I mean, you know, heroin and other opiates. Um, so, yes, it's for both, both reasons. But, I mean, they were, they were actually uh, guiding Ronald Stark, was found to be working for the CIA and, since 1960, and he was the largest uh, acid dealer in the world. He was trafficking acid with laboratories in at least three continents, and the t- uh, top uh, British official investigating his group in, in England found that his group in England actually uh, distributed in just three years alone 100 million hits of acid. And so he was found by an Italian judge to you know have been... Uh, part of the CIA since 1960. The first judge actually ruling over Ron Stark's case was murdered. The second judge let him go because of all his proof that he, he was part of the Secret Services of the United States. So that's just um, 
some of the evidence of the way they were doing things, you know, to hurt uh, protest movements. So even though he was breaking the law, he was doing this, he was, you know, pretty much putting acid and uh, stuff out on the streets because he was yeah. part of the CIA. He was he was pretty much above the law. He was void from any type of prosecution. Yeah, well, the judge was apparently too scared. If the first judge was murdered, the second judge was too scared to even keep him in prison and let him go and gave him over to the, uh, you know, American authorities. Um, you know, a government Italian um, commission, you know, wrote a report on Ronald Stark about all that. So it's, um, you know, it's well documented. And, uh, you know, he's just one example. There was just loads of networks that uh, should show all the intelligence connections to a number of networks of acid networks. But the biggest one was the one he was part of, which was called the Brotherhood, Brotherhood of Eternal Love that the Mellon Hitchcocks had started, who were extremely wealthy, as I said, being part of Gulf Oil, Mellon Bank, and had, you know, U.S. intelligence operatives in their family. But Peggy and... Uh, you know, William Mellon Hitchcock just put tons of money into different headquarters for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love all over the country, and including Mexico. Timothy Leary was part of the group, a guy named Owsley, if you ever heard of him, Augustus Stanley Owsley III was part of that group. And um, you know, some of the clients that, that I've counseled said, oh, they, they, when they were dealing acid, they got it from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love up in the 80s and 90s. So it kept running. Uh, you know, at least till the '90s, if not till today. Well, and there's a lot, and the CIA's involvement in running drugs is not something new. I mean, this has been talked about right. for a long time. There's documents out there that support this. There's, yeah. uh, of course, all that's come out. I mean, endless TV shows these days have been pushing information on that, showing the government's involvement, whether it be narco's talking about the drug movements through Colombia into the United yeah. States, or even the show, the show. I'm not even sure if it's on it anymore, but FX Snow, where they, they were showing how they were bringing. Uh, crack and cocaine into into uh, certain certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So this is yeah, this, so I, it's, it's nothing Wallace new, and they were using talking a lot. about that and talking about the saying the head of the DEA said they caught the CIA trafficking cocaine in 1993, a ton of pure cocaine into the United States. Yeah, through California, I believe it was correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the and the fact of the matter is, the, them moving all these drugs and also dealing with a lot of money uh, for these sort of these secret wars that they were working on, mm-hmm. being like a government inside the government, correct? Yes, and you know, and some of these wars were for the sources of the drugs because the longest wars in U.S. history were in Vietnam and Afghanistan, where the was the Golden Triangle and the Golden Crescent for poppy fields that produce opium and heroin. And so I just show that it's no coincidence that those were the longest wars in U.S. history because they, they wars are for resources, and it's, whether it's oil or drugs, you know, those are the most profitable resources. And that's what we coveted, you know, and that's what we covet now in Afghanistan, I show. I mean, there, there's other things that are there, too, lithium and other resources, and, but, you know, drugs is a big one. John, you've you've done a tremendous amount of work um, in preparing your book and now the documentary film. Um has anybody else brought any of these assertions to uh, the public? Have there ever been any uh, official court cases filed or anything along those lines? Yeah, well, of course, uh, Gary Webb was a big, you know, big one to bring all this to light. Um, and his, he had one of the first viral articles with his front page articles for the San Jose Mercury News for a week. And he had won a Pulitzer Prize on another project he had worked on before that. Um, and sadly, he died young, and uh, two shots to the head, and they said it was a suicide. Uh, but people like Robert Perry, a Newsweek writer who also wrote for the Associated Press, actually came out with this information even before Gary Webb. But Gary Webb made it the most popular. Let's bring it. Um, let's know, bring it back there for cocaine. one. Let's bring it back there for one second. You said two shots to the head, and it was yeah. listed as a suicide. I mean, I can yeah. understand somebody shooting themselves in the head once, but pulling that off twice. Yeah, how you how you exactly. pull that trigger a second time is pretty amazing. I mean, I, I guess it could have been a double fire. Has that ever happened? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I've never heard of that. Yeah, but I don't you know. know look, I'm, just, I, I'm not. An try expert, to give somebody the sounds <laughs> suspicious to me. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Uh, we have to take a break here, uh, but when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation because it's very interesting. And we're going to open up the phone lines right now as well in case you want to uh, chime in on the discussion or ask a question of our guest. Yes, we're talking with John Potash, author and documentarian. You're listening to Jason and JV, Beyond Reality Radio. The phone number is 844-687-7669. We're going to take a quick break. A lot more to come. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Um, I want to quickly take a listener phone call here. Um, this is uh, Philip in North Carolina. Hey, Philip, welcome, welcome to the program. You're on with John Potash. All right. Um, thanks again, John, uh, and thank you guys for having me on. Uh, I just saw a news story that seemed pertinent to this conversation. It was, uh, I think it was conservativetree.com, <clears throat> and it said that uh, Mitch McConnell had delivered a message to Donald Trump that if he goes through with pulling out of Afghanistan and Syria, that uh, they'll go ahead and impeach him. And there was a, there's a list of Congress people, a bunch of, a bunch of Republicans, uh, senator, including senators. And uh, then there was a list of the lobbyists who are back in this. And it, it's like a who's who of, um, you know, the military-industrial complex. You've got Dow Chemicals. Then there was Boeing. I, you know, I don't remember the whole list, but I, I haven't had an opportunity to see if this is a valid story. I suspect it is, but um, you know, it, it just plays into the same thing. It's like, why are we in Afghanistan? Right. If, if you Google, yeah. if you Google U.S. soldiers guarding poppy fields and look at the images, the images go on and on and on mm-hmm. and on. It's crazy. Yeah, it's um, so and I, so I'm sorry, I didn't really have a question. I no, that's okay. That's that that's okay. No, yeah, I mean it's you a go real good it. point. I mean, it's not only the military-industrial complex, but big pharma, who I just heard Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talk about as being even twice as big as the military-industrial lobbyists. You know, they have like twice as many lobbyists in Congress as military-industrial complex because big pharma gets wants the cheaper um, opium for painkillers. But then they also understand that if they develop addictions to the painkillers, they'll make more money, too, sadly enough. So, yeah, a lot of people want that op- those poppy fields and want the opium and for, you know, all kinds of reasons. But a lot of them are, you know, the biggest money, of course, is the heroin sales. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a real shame. And so I, sh- I document in the book, I got um, John Stockwell talking again about how he his fellow agents told him that, by the uh, late 80s, and, uh, you know, they were already trafficking the opium and heroin out of Afghanistan, that region, because that's the Golden Crescent for poppy fields, as I said earlier. And so um, I showed the evidence that they then psychologically profiled the musicians that could popularize heroin for them, because when you got all that supply, you need to match it with demand. And so um, I show the evidence that uh, Kurt Cobain, because of a massive stomach problem he had, he had dabbled and tried heroin just a few times in his life, according to his diaries from 1987 to 1991. And then into his life comes this, this bizarre woman, Courtney Love, who uh, I show the evidence was a, was a prostitute as early. In her, own, in her own letter, she said she had prostituted as a teenager. And uh, she was stripping for the, the uh, you know, uh, Japanese mafia at one point, then she's uh, stripping for the Taiwanese mafia, going to those countries and stripping and being involved in live sex acts and all kinds of other stuff. And her father said that um, he, you know, his daughter had become a He lost custody of his daughter when she was five or six because her, her biological mother's uh, parents were super wealthy and bought off his lawyer. And then when she was 13 years old, she wrote him a letter from a juvenile delinquent facility and begging him to get her out of there. And uh, he got her out of there and found that she was already uh, uh, drug addicted. And she, in her letter, she said that her counselors were having sex with her since she was an infant, four years old or so, and that they were giving her psychohypnotic drugs, the same kind of drugs actually that are used by what are used by MK, MKUltra. But either way, she was uh, prostituting in her early teens, he said, he found, and leaving heroin needles all over his home, and he had to kick her out. But um, then he's, he was over in Ireland, in Ireland doing research for a book, 
and she visited him when she was 16, just turning 17. She brought over a thousand hits of acid, and she uh, inadvertently he inadvertently introduced her to a new friend of his, who later on the uh, this guy named Stephen O'Leary, and Stephen O'Leary said on his deathbed that he was actually working for the CIA um, for all those years. And so Stephen O'Leary proceeds to take uh, to take her under his wing for the next six weeks, and takes her over to London where she she passed. John, we're going to have to. I'm sorry, I got to cut you off because we've got to take a hard break here. All right, you listen to Jason JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to Patreon.com/slash Johaw. That's J O H A W. It's um it's great to uh, be here. I, I I love doing the show when we're both here because um you know we get to chat about things that we don't get to you know normally talk about. Yeah, I love doing the show when I'm here. Wait, the best way. So um I you know I know there's not a lot we can talk about, but uh, you're going to be going on the road soon. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Did I just say something I shouldn't have? No, no, yeah. I'm going to go on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're going to be doing the show when you can from the road. Um, Wait, various locations. This show, no, the radio yes, show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from the road. Trying to keep things in the bag. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh huh. And um, but you're going to be able to do that from like you know all these really cool locations. So that's going to be kind of neat. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, drinking rum runners at bars and stuff, trying to do the show. <laughs> That's the kind yeah. of show I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. JV and Jay and. Rum runner bars, yeah, that'd be great. That, that's actually we'd have to work on the name. I think whole, that name kind of sucks. Uh, I don't think at that point the name we wouldn't even be able to say no, it. So I think it that's matter. actually how we'd be saying JV and Jimmy J and Bards Rum Runner. So anyway, welcome back to the program, everybody. It's uh, Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, tomorrow night, actually later in tonight's program, we've got Rhonda and Dwight Hall joining us to talk about their new book called Conversations with Spirits of the Southwest. Tomorrow night, Charles Reichbloom, who's also known as Dr. Knowledge, will be with us to talk about his book, the all-time book of fascinating facts. And they are fascinating. They really are. i got to give them that. And then uh, Thursday, we've got our good friend, uh, well, we got Readings with Rebecca. So... Make sure you call in. Rebecca gives great readings, and uh, it's always a wonderful night. Yeah, and the phone lines just go crazy. So if you uh, are hoping to get through, you're going to have to get your dialing fingers ready and dial and dial and dial, and hopefully you'll get through. Tonight we're talking with John Potash about his new documentary, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA War on Musicians and Activists. And, John, I just want to take a step back to Philip's phone call. Before the break, he was talking about seeing a news report that Mitch McConnell and many senior Republicans had signed some type of letter to President Trump saying that if he pulled out of Afghanistan, that they would move or side with the Democrats to impeach him. Have you seen anything that might substantiate that report? I haven't, I'm sorry to say, but I can totally believe it because it's enough, sadly enough, both the Democrats and the Republicans both are constantly pro-war especially pro-war in places like Afghanistan where the poppy fields are. It's um, if, uh, you know, if anybody has uh, an opportunity to verify that, uh, Slick, if you could take a look at that too, that'd be, uh, be worth checking out. I appreciate Philip bringing that to our attention because that is, that is um, quite a, a, um, an important piece of information, particularly as this conversation continues. Um, and I will say too, that we do, uh, if you do want to make a comment and ask a question, 844-687-7669 is the telephone number. Now, does this program, I know that you said that it had, been, it had been killed and then it has been hidden under different names. Um, as we fast forward to 2019, is this stuff still continuing? I argue it is because, I mean, I, 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 you know, I focus the most on these four musicians, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, Kurt Cobain, and, and Tupac Shakur. And with Cobain, for example... Um, after Love got him using heroin daily, he then sobered up and uh, months before he died and showed the evidence of that. And then I have uh, the head of the Academy of Forensic Science um, saying that he believes Cobain's death was a murder made to look like a suicide. And so he's in the film saying that. But um, So this is the way it all works. But I show how there's evidence of other people in the grunge scene who have died in the past five to ten years, um, they they had gotten into activism and they had sobered up and and they they and you know their fates were similar to Cobain's. And then of course in the rap scene, uh, I focus on Tupac um, and show how he was actually getting these gang peace truce, truces across the country and stopping the drug dealing all across the country. Thousands of drug dealers and gangs were stopping drug dealing 
because of his movement with his Black Panther extended family, and that took huge amounts of profit away from the, the uh, drug traffickers, the CIA, but also the money launderers of the banks. And so, um, but that continued, the activism in the rap community continued in different ways, and I show that there's evidence that, that the targeting continued with people like Jam Master J of Run DMC when he, when he became an activist. More and more, according to Baltimore Sun, um, he was done away with, and the videotape of the people that came into his studio and murdered him uh, was never released, just like the videotape of the people that first shot Tupac in New York was never done, and no one did anything with that video. So this is the way police seem to you know, hide evidence in these situations. And so it, there's evidence, sure, that it's continued to today, but uh, my research just had to stop at a certain point and yeah. you know, put it into package form in the book and then the film. I know you don't have a lot of time left for us. Um, in fact, I think we've kept you over time a little bit. I want to take one more yeah. listener phone call, and then I have one more sure. question for sure. it before we let you go. Okay, this is Vince in Missouri. Hey, Vince, you have a question for uh, John? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, you know, we can't go with mob rules as far as what he was talking about, Tupac and all that goes. But Afghanistan, uh, you know, we were over there for a reason. And, you know, as far as the drug trade goes, look, the demand is here. That's why the drugs come here. And you can take the troops from where, here, there, put them wherever you want. As long as you have demand, there's going to be a supply. And you can rotate it around the world clockwise, counterclockwise. If we don't get people's minds thinking right, and that they're cloudless and dumbing us down and making us stupid, legalizing all these drugs. Then, uh, you know. then we're we're kind of we're kind of hopeless. I think that's a great point, Vince. And I think uh, what John has been saying all along: the CIA's effort is to get the drugs into the hands of influencers like these musicians yeah. to create the demand. I'm I'm assuming that's what the whole point yeah, is, right, John? Supply and demand. Yes, yes, to increase the demand. And, you know, I've been working 30 years to decrease the demand amongst, you know, and trying to get addicts into recovery and sobriety. So, I, you know, I, I hope to keep doing that. But it's sad that uh, I'm fighting a, a tough battle when, when uh, you know, the CIA's, oper- you know, Project MKUltra is doing the opposite and trying to promote it more and more, and including with ecstasy amongst rappers and, you know, like Eminem and others who, who have sobered up since he first started promoting ecstasy. But... Also, other you know musicians have been promoting ecstasy. They call it Molly now, but um, I show the the origins of that and uh, and you know related to chemical warfare and all. So, so um, one more quick question here: the uh, many of the musicians that uh, we we've talked about tonight and we've talked about in other cases are uh, members of the Twenty Seven Club. They died at the age of twenty seven. I know that that number isn't necessarily specific to what we're talking about, but are those deaths all uh, in question uh, as it relates to the conversation we've had tonight? Well, I, I didn't get into it in my book, but I do I do show how the, the CIA ha, has used anniversary timing tactics with uh, other situations, such as the year anniversary of Martin Luther King saying he was against the Vietnam War, um, and he was assassinated, and um, other, other situations like that. So I, I think it, it's not beyond... Uh, the possibility that 27 was used in that way to uh, give some kind of subconscious warning um, to people. Um, because Kurt Cobain, Janice Joplin, I cover in the book, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix were all 27, and there's more than that, of course. There's many of them, and, and uh, sadly enough, a lot of them were, did have drug problems. But, um, you know, I show that Janice was getting more into activism, was sobering up. Um, Kurt Cobain was sober, according to blood tests, and Jimi Hendrix was sobering up, according to his fiancée in her memoir before she died. And so, yeah, this is, you know, the way it seems to be. Okay, so where can people see the documentary Drugs as Weapons Against Us? So it's av- available video on demand on iTunes, Voodoo, Vimeo, Microsoft Xbox, Google Play, YouTube, Rent. Um, it's also, you can also buy it from Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, Walmart, Target, Amazon, of course, um, places like that. And if you want to find out more about it, go to um, www.drugsasweapons.com. And if you want to find out it more about the movie, within that link, you can also go to drugsisweaponsmovie.com, but um, drugsisweapons.com is easy to remember. So 
I hope you find out more about it all there and see the trailer. Well, John, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us again. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and we look forward to talking talking to you again. All right, you have a great night now. You know, you have to hope something like that's not true, but more more we hear stories about what the government is capable of, the more we have to take stories like that and say, yeah, um, we really need to take this seriously and, and give it a lot of consideration. Well, and it's scarier because very few people are paying attention, and even when they do, very few people are holding their feet to the fire for the things that they, they do, and they get, they, get, they get away with. That's an absolutely excellent point. Um, we reelect the same people over and over again, and uh, you know they just get away with murder. And, a lot, and, and I mean that literally in many cases. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we're going to change the topic of conversation. Our next guests for this evening are uh, Rhonda and Dwight Hull, paranormal researchers, psychic mediums. We've had them on the program before. They have a new book. It's called Conversations with Spirits of the Southwest, a continued journey into the paranormal. So we're excited to have both uh, Rhonda and Dwight with us. Welcome back to the program, guys. I'm great to be back. Happy to have you back. So, uh, Dwight, what have the two of you been up to since you were on the program? Oh, just trying to get this second book all buttoned up and uh, out there. And uh, from there, we're we're still out there doing our thing and uh, investigating and going out to some of these ghost towns and revisiting some of these ghost towns. And, uh, you know, we got basically a, uh, a playground of the Old West out here, so we try to get out into it as often as we can. Well, I, and it's got such incredible places out that way. But what's interesting about this book is it's, it's following the continuing paranormal investiga- adventures of you all as they as you explore the history of Old West by speaking with the best of all possible sources, the spirits of men and women who lived it. Yeah, yeah. What we do is, uh, you know, we go out and, you know, Rhonda's a uh, psychic. Uh, we also had Dan Baldwin with us, who is a pendulum dowser, uh, kind of added a new flavor to the mix, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I've been investigating for many, many years and also a psychic medium. So, you know, we go out and we try to make contact with whatever spirits are, you know, in the area or in that location. And we try to get some answers, try to ask them some questions. And, you know, basically what we try to do is learn history through the people who live that history and uh, we've gotten some pretty interesting stuff. Well, I think that's amazing to hear because I, I find it hard enough to go to a case and actually catch EVPs, but you guys are catching enough information to actually write entire stories about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, between the, you know, the pendulum and a, you know, a psychic medium and, you know, they, they kind of, um, uh, uh, lack of a better term, fact check each other. You know, they don't look at each other when, you know, we're in a location, so one's not feeding off the other. So, you know, we kind of corroborate, you know, information right there on on the spot. Uh, we do get EVPs uh, on occasion, um, but what's nice about this that we're doing is we're kind of getting answers, uh, lack of a better word, real time. So we're able to direct the questions and the conversation um, in a better way instead of, you know, recording for, you know, X number of minutes or hours, going home, listening to it and say, oh, hey, we got an EVP here. We got to go back, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, it works out pretty well. And we're able to, you know, you know, get some answers anyway. Well, and you guys also open it up for readers to be able to go over to your, your website and hear the actual voices of the spirits that are contacted by you all. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we put all the EVPs up on our website. Uh, they're all in the book. And then you can just go right to the website and log on and uh, go in there and listen to all of them. And, uh, you know, we try to share as much as we can with people. As you um, were investigating and researching and visiting the places, you must, I mean, the Southwest is a vast area with a lot of uh, desert and a lot of um, um, unpopulated areas. Uh, so what what did you use to as your criteria to decide where to go? You know, uh, in the first book, we kind of tried to go to places that people would know, you know, Tombstone and, and those kind of places. Uh, in the second book, we did that as well, but we kind of branched out and um, you know, we did a little bit of research on ghost towns or, you know, 
forgotten ghost towns. A lot of these places were on private land now. They're not even on government land. They're on private land. So we'd contact the owners and see if we can come on and, and that kind of a thing. And, um, you know, the only real criteria to investigating it is, you know, that there was at least people there. Um, a good example of that is uh, the Presidio that we went to. It's a old Spanish fort out here uh, built in 1776. And, you know, we went out there just absolutely you know, wanting to talk to, you know, the Spanish soldiers or the Apaches who fought the Spanish soldiers. And we got out there and we, you know, just kind of came up with a goose egg on that. We didn't, you know, contact the Spanish soldiers. We weren't able to contact the Apaches. Um, however, we did um, unexpectedly contact, uh, I guess you'd call them Paleo Indians. Uh, they were the Clovis people. Uh, you know, way before. We're talking thousands of years before. Um, and it, that was an interesting conversation because although they seemed, I guess, to understand our language, and we say that because they did, you know, kind of converse with us, so to speak, and we did get some EVPs in English, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, Rhonda, I've got to ask you, uh, we've talked about this before, but as a psychic medium, how do you apply those sensitivities on these investigations that you do? Well, um, any anytime we're out really anywhere, but going on an investigation, uh, typically the people that are there will make contact before we ever get there. I'll pick up a feeling on, you know, if it's a female or male, and then as we get closer, names visions. Um, so by the time we get there, I have a pretty good idea of who's there. I don't typically say anything until we begin what we're going to do. When you, when you say you don't say anything until you begin what you're going to do, do you mean you don't, you don't communicate with the spirit? Is that what you're saying? No, I don't communicate with Dwight and Dan. Oh, I, I don't see. give okay. away anything before we start what we're what we're doing so that we can corroborate each other. I see. Okay, so you're getting these this information, you're getting this communication, this contact well in advance of the investigation, but you don't relay any of that information. That is correct. Yeah. Um, do you find that um, the uh, you have more success than not is in corroborating the, uh, the information that the, the guys find in the more scientific approach to the investigation? Um, well, I think that we kind of, for the most part, what we've done, so we can scientifically back up what we are all getting. Um, I know there's been a few occasions when we've gone to a location to hopefully speak to a group of people that we know were there, and then we get sidetracked by somebody else who's there. Um, that happened in the Superstition Mountains with uh, Alicia Rivas, who was a gold minor, I guess you would say, and a recluse. Um, we went up there to talk to um, a group of people who fought in a massacre. And as we were leading down this trail, uh, this man kind of jogged us a different direction. And Dan was like 20 yards in front. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. We, we need to go over this way. And so we all went over and Dropped, uh, dropped down into a wash and had a conversation with this man. At the time, Dan was getting that there was a different individual there. Dwight and I both were seeing and feeling this other man. So we may have talked to two individuals, but Alicia Reaver gave us, uh, or Rivas gave us uh, the most information. And we got backed up with electronics, with EVP. Dwight, uh, from um, the other side of this discussion, um, as Rhonda is doing her work as a psychic medium, um, you know, how are you operating simultaneous to that? Well, what I'm doing is I'm running recorders. Um, you know, we don't take a lot of equipment out with us, uh, especially when we're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, my main function when we go out and do something like that is I'm I'm the guy who asks the questions kind of leads the interview so to speak um i'm a you know former police officer so you know that kind of comes natural to me so i just kind of took over the role so to speak uh so i'll ask the questions um rondo either you know 
audibly give me the answers or Dan will say, well, that's, that's a yes, you know, on the pendulum or no, that's a no. And, you know, we kind of, you know, lead the questions that way. So Dan's working with one piece of equipment, which is, you know, the pendulum, you know, Rhonda's doing, uh, you know, her psychic work and I'm, you know, basically leading the questions and trying to do the interview. You're interrogating. Basically, yeah. As an, nice an, I'm just trying to put. Hey, you're an ex officer. Let's just call yeah. it what it is, right? I'm always, I'm always a good cop. Yeah, I can't play bad cop. I tried. I just I can't come off with it. So, so <laughs> let's let's talk about some of the the accounts and the stories that you included in in the book. What uh, impressed you the most? Um, I think what impressed me the most, and what I think what impressed all of us the most, is uh, for the most part the willingness for a lot of these, uh, you know, spirits that are hanging around these towns to uh, to talk to us. Um, you know, doing what we do, we're able to kind of get more of an extended conversation, not just you know go in there and you know run recorders, ask your questions, and then you know try to you know get an EVP. Um, by using a psychic medium and a pendulum dials, we're actually, you know, like I said before, able to get, you know, answers kind of real time. Um, so I think we were all kind of surprised at the willingness that a lot of these spirits had to, you know, contact us and, and talk to us and tell us their story. Um, you know, some were more willing than others, of course, you know, and, you know, Jason, of course, you know that for sure. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was a comfort really to know that, you know, there's, you know, good folks out there that, you know, just want to talk or, you know, in some cases just want to be left alone. But, you know, we did that too, if they wanted us to. Yeah, I agree with that, Dwight. Let me ask this. Before we went to break a little while ago, you were talking about when you went out and trying to contact uh, some Native Americans, but actually ones from long prior uh, made contact with you and they were speaking English. Now, why, why do you think that that was how do you think that they had the ability to well communicate with you speaking the well english especially when i mean it really wasn't even in the in in the country by the at that time right um you know my theory on that um and it goes with just about any place you go that has um you know tourism or people coming out um you know because this place it's it's not a really well-known place but they do take you know on occasion tours out and a lot of people around the area go out there. So my thought is, you know, they just pick it up over time. I mean, if, if you spend 20 years in France, you're going to pick up the language. Um, you know, these folks who we think, you know, we hope we were talking to that were, you know, paleo 10,000 years ago, you know, they were listening to, you know, the Spanish and the Cowboys and the Indians and everything else. And, you know, nowadays they're they're listening to the English come up there and and speak their language. So I'm I'm thinking it's just you know saturation. You know, they they just pick it up from the people who are out there. Well, I like that. I like how you answered that because uh, the, uh, every so often you see these these silly uh, memes going around online and stuff. And there's always these ones about you know uh, the ghost hunters asking a question in a 500 year old castle and. Uh, German castle and something responds in English. And the fact of the matter is they always have my image on it, even though I've never been in a 500 year old castle in Germany investigating, whatever. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is over the, over time, I, I mean, just because they're in their realm doesn't mean that they can't learn things. And if, if English is a, a language that's being spoken all the time uh, around these locations, of course, over time, these things will learn and they'll be able to speak multiple languages. Right, exactly. And, you know, we've the only problem we ran into with that particular case was uh, we were using terms that they just didn't know. We were saying bow and arrow. Well, they didn't have a bow and arrow. They had spears. So they didn't even know what we were talking about. So, you know, the pendulum would go flat, and Rhonda's like, I don't think they know what you're talking about. So I had to kind of rephrase it and, you know, talk about, you know, another kind of a weapon. And that's how we were able to kind of stumble our way through. But even though they understand our language, they may not understand our terms. So it's kind of important, you know, for us to know that and kind of try to regroup on a fly and, you know, re-ask a question or try to redirect it. Well, and, and we've had that as well in certain locations when you're asking, you know, are you from OK? And 
okay but way back then they didn't they weren't referring to oklahoma as okay and thing so yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of different confusions especially when you're trying to talk to something that may be from you know 100 200 years ago where words we use now weren't prevalent back then right and we do run into that a lot um well, Here we've actually West, been fact, taught a language or a word that we didn't know that was an 1800s term, Dwight. Really? What was right. that? Right. Yeah. We well, we went out. Uh, we went out to the Clanton Ranch, the old Clanton Ranch. You know, the, you know, Clantons and McLowrys. Yeah. Uh, we went out there, and um, on our way out, we got all cut up by the mesquite by the mesquite bushes and such like that. So we were kind of bleeding and. Uh, we got an EVP, just a, an amazing EVP from an, an older su- Southern guy who we think was Mr. Clanton. And he said, over here, long way, really bad brush sting. And that was the whole EVP, and it was super clear. It was a Class A. And I heard that, and I was like, what the heck is brush sting? We had to Google it because they used a term that I didn't know. And, of course, brush sting is when you get cut up by the brush when you're going through and usually – talk about horses but you know he said brush sting so that was kind of a reverse they used a term that we didn't know so i you know luckily we have google they didn't so it was easier for us to check it out but it was kind of an interesting uh interesting time yeah i understand that so have you ever had an experience either of you ever had an experience with pretty much a not not nice spirit yeah i'll let Rhonda take that one she tells that one uh, um, only really, I think ever once with a really not nice spirit, we were investigating a, a field out in not too far from here where a, um, it was a, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the law enforcement of the eighties went to go serve a warrant on a, a cult faction that was living there. And there was, um, it's a killing field, but Dwight, I'm, I've lost my train of thought here. Okay, well, I'll take over then. Any anyway, the 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 cult, the religious cult, kind of got into it with the uh, with the police officers. So there was a shootout, and people got killed and injured. Uh, so we went there, and it was just full of just really. I mean, you can feel it when you get into the field, and I'm I'm sure Jason, you felt it at times too. I mean, you walk into a place and you can just feel it. It's like a wet blanket covering you. So we were, we knew we were kind of in a bad area, uh, in a bad situation, but we did our investigation and, you know, we came up with some EVPs, but when we got home, we walked into our house and the house just stunk. I mean, uh, best I can describe it is like rotten fish. And we went outside, we took a step outside, you know, there's no smell. We went inside the house and there was a smell. And it just kind of dawned on us that, hey, we brought something home and it's not good from that field. And, you know, I got to tell you, you know, we tried to get rid of it and, you know, started talking to it, telling it had to leave. And, you know, that's, you know, when I saw my wife turn into the exorcist and she just started spouting words that, uh, I mean, she made a trucker proud. And she got rid of it. I mean, literally within maybe a minute, minute and a half, the smell was gone. And, you know, it was, yeah. Uh, so that's probably about the only nasty one that we ran into uh, during the making of this book, and both books, actually. But, uh, yeah, you just have to be careful out there because, you know, sometimes they do follow you home and sometimes they're not, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost. We have, yeah, we've got just a couple minutes here left um, to chat about uh, the books and uh, tell people where they can get a hold of them. I know your website is Believe Paranormal, and that's B as in Bumblebee, B E E, believeparanormal.com. Uh, there's information about the books there, but where can people get a hold of them? Uh, any place where you buy your books. Uh, Amazon, uh, I don't know if Walmart's got it yet, but uh, Amazon and uh, all the online book places. Uh, Barnes and Noble. So any place you buy your books, you should be able to find it there. All right. Well, let me and, ask. Go ahead, JV. No, if you have, have another question, well, I just no. want to. So if you could investigate any place out there right now, where where would it be? Out here. Well, yeah, just any any place in the world. How about that? Oh, any place in the world. You know, right now, my 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 big 
place to investigate would be uh, Meriwether Lewis's uh, cabin where he died. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's just a, a huge uh, mystery to me, and I, I really would like to go there and, and try to investigate that and uh, try to get some answers as to, because I don't believe he killed himself. So, you know, it's the whole uh, conspiracy theory thing, and uh, I would love to talk to him and uh, find out what happened there. Do people have to read the first book to appreciate the second book, or are they both standalone? They're, they're both standalone. Uh, we did the second book kind of as a companion to the first, um, and it's just bringing in some different locations, but you don't have to read one to read the other. All, all right. right. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us, and uh, we look forward to having you all on again, talking again at some point. Cool. Thank you so much for having us on. We had a great time. Thanks for having us. You have a great night. Tomorrow night, we've got Charles Reichbloom, Dr. Knowledge, on the program, talking about his book, The All-Time Book of Fascinating Facts. And we've had him on the program a couple of times, and it is always fascinating. A little humorous, intriguing, all this, all that. All the traumatizing all, sometimes, yeah, it's everything. Sometimes it is. So, and then Thursday we've got our friend Rebecca on, so we'll have readings with Rebecca Foster, which is always a very interesting and busy show. So make sure you call in. Rebecca gives you a great reading or <clears throat> not so great reading. Usually they're all positive, and uh, go from there. If you haven't yet, make sure you head over to Facebook.com/slash Beyond Reality Radio. Like that Facebook page for us. Then head to BeyondRealityRadio.com. You're able to find all the stations we are on across the country, and that list is constantly being updated with new stations being added all the time. We're actually getting ready to add a few more over the next week. Uh, you can also download the smartphone apps for Android and iPhone, which allow you to listen live, catch past shows, join the online chat, and more. Or any night we're live, just feel free to click the Listen Live button or the Listen Live and Chat button, and you can listen right there from the website while hanging out with a great community of people or just browsing the rest of the web. If you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, just do us a favor and take two seconds of your time and rate it for us. helps push it forward and makes it easier to find, and that's what it's all about, just getting the word out. Uh, that's pretty much going to do it for us tonight. So, again, make sure you tune in tomorrow. we got Charles Rechblum on, Dr. Knowledge. Uh, we're going to be talking about fascinating facts from the all-time book of fascinating facts. You listen to Jason JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you all tomorrow. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by JV Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.